Hi there. Before we get into today's episode, some of you regular listeners may have noticed a new name for this podcast in your feeds. That's right, we're now known as Nexus. This is the first of several exciting new things Clarity is building around the Nexus brand that we'll be bringing to you soon. As for this podcast, only the name has changed. You'll still be hearing from the best minds in OT, IoT, and IOMT cybersecurity on a regular basis. So please continue to listen and support this podcast. Thanks. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Joining me today is retired U.S. Navy Admiral Michael Rogers. Admiral Rogers has a long legacy of service to this country, including his time as NSA director and the second commander of U.S. Cyber Command. Michael is also the chairman of Clarity's Board of Advisors. So today we're going to talk about the recently released National Cybersecurity Strategy Uh, The first such strategy delivered by the White House in quite some time. Um, There are five pillars that make up this report, and uh, we're going to discuss what it means for security leaders who are responsible for the safety of cyber physical systems and uh, touch on a bunch of other stuff in the the strategy. It should be a good conversation. So that said, let's bring in Mike Rogers. How are you, sir? Welcome back. Very good. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, for joining me. I, I really am interested in your perspective on the on the strategy. I know I I read different places where it's been like 15 years since the last one. There've been kind of mini strategies. No, last strategy was during the Trump administration in 2018. So it's been five years, it's been and five not surprisingly, years. this is the first from the Biden team. Two years gotcha. in office. So your initial thoughts on the strategy? Now that you know everybody's had a probably about a week to to digest it. Uh, any surprises in there? There's there's definitely some some themes that run throughout the the document. Yeah. So the first thing I would highlight is there is nothing new in some ways, in the sense that it is it puts down in writing what the Biden administration has effectively been doing with respect to its cyber strategy for the last two years. Yeah. So in some way, and that's not to minimize the value of the document. It is only to say that in some ways, rather than presenting something new nobody's ever seen, in some ways, this is a distillation of the set of practices and events and, you know, um, initiatives that the Biden team has already been doing. In fact, the document spends a lot of time citing all of those changes. Right. There's a lot of references in there to recent executive orders, especially the big one in in 2021. Um, etc. So yeah, it does a good job of kind of coalescing all of that. Yeah, and one other thought that's also reflected in the strategy does not create a single new organization. Again, rather it it doubles down on the structure that has been put in place over the mm-hmm. last you know several years, which I thought was also interesting. It it, it opts to double down uh, on the current structure, if you will, to actually execute much of yeah. what the strategy outlines. What's your experience with past strategies and implementations? Do you have any insight in terms of, you know, where all the input comes from, what works, what exactly. what didn't work? So I, I was a participant. In, I was directly a participant in what we call the principles level in government, which is just one notch below the president. But quite frankly, normally for things like this, it's the principles level where the final decision is made. And then the recommendation is made to the president. Sure. Hey, you should sign this document. So I've done this. 
twice at that level. And then previously in my career, I, I certainly was one of many who participated in the development. And in some cases, when I was a mid-grade officer, the writing of cyber strategies in the DOD and in the broader U.S. government. So normally what happens is there's a working group process that kind of tries to distill the concepts that the document, that the strategy itself will um, enumerate. And then there's normally a lead drafter, so so to speak. I assume the lead drafter in this case was part of Ann Newberger's team and the National Security Council mm-hmm. or potentially in the National Cyber Director's Office. Um, once the lead, once there's a, a actual draft, if you will, then it goes through a review process. There's a working group, then there's the deputies level, and then ultimately it is uh, approved at a principal's level and then forwarded to the president for his review, approval, and signature. And that process can take, boy, I've, I've been in ones that have gone 18 months. I would say nine to 12 months is a pretty typical average in government. And I suspect that's what this one was somewhere in the nine to 12 months. Do you hear any common misconceptions about the document itself in terms of how it should be used, how it should be viewed? Is it a strategy? Is it a recommendation? Is it a mandate? What's your perspective on that? Right. So the first thing I would remind people, it is a strategy. The strategy defines the what. It kind of highlights what's the objective or the end state And what is our broad plan to get there? It is not a plan of execution. It is not an execution document. It does not have the level of specificity of timelines, allocation of resources, who's the lead on what particular, um, every single sub-element. That's not what a strategy does. So it's always important to remind, because some people will say when they read things like this, yeah, but it's too broad or too generic. And I'm like, guys, remember what the purpose of a strategy is. It's not an execution document. It's supposed to be broad in some sense. Right, because it's a strategy. Right. Then you have underpinnings that will then outline the specifics of execution to include who's responsible, what's the timeline, what resources will be allocated, and who are the parties that will be part of that particular action, if you mm-hmm. will. Now, the document that the the strategy does identify an overall responsibility. It says the national cyber director has overall responsibility for the monitoring and execution of the strategy, if you will. In this strategy, there's a lot of mention in here about OT and cyber physical systems. From your perspective, I mean, I hate to keep coming back to colonial as kind of the catch-all, but is that what mm-hmm. kind of pushed this forward and brought about this real focus on on OT and, and cyber physical. I mean, clearly it was a significant element. Yeah. But it's also reflective of a broader trend where activities by nation states, by non-state actors like criminals, you've seen an increased focus against OT infrastructure. It's, it's also reflected in the fact that document spends a lot of time highlighting the importance of critical infrastructure and who has responsibility in that area. Now, interestingly to me, the document also does not define critical infrastructure. It doesn't say what are its components. I thought that was a little interesting, but because it's a phrase you often tend to throw around, but I I often wonder, and this is just my personal opinion, if we have necessarily really thought this all the way through. If you look at historically what the government has defined as critical infrastructure, it is generally associated with some product or outcome, something tangible, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, part of me wonders, 
Well, what is critical? And that to me is a very industrial age, 20th century kind of model. To me, the, the part I don't see so much and I don't hear discussed is, well, what does critical infrastructure look like in a digital economy? For example, we never talk about data generally as a component of critical infrastructure. And right. yet I'm going, data is what underpins our, our economic models. It is what generates value as we bring on new technologies like AI and machine learning. It represents significant vulnerability in the sense of the amount of personally identifiable information that is out there within all that data. I, I, I do hope that in the, you know, as we move forward, we're also going to spend some time thinking about what is critical infrastructure from a digital perspective. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a great point. point. Even on a more granular level, if you're looking in manufacturing and some of the more industrial sectors, the, you know, these devices are sharing a lot of data with the cloud now, and, and a lot of stuff's moving through there, being managed through the cloud. And, you know, it kind of falls in line as well with what you just said. Yeah, because to that point, Mike, it's also interesting to me, the document doesn't outline cybersecurity writ large. It seems to focus on a very specific subset, critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So to your point, one of the things I was thinking to myself was, okay, so what happens if you're significant, if you're, for example, in the manufacturing arena, but you don't necessarily, quote, meet the criteria for critical infrastructure? Right. And how much of our economy would that would meet that delineation? Hey, mm -hmm. you're you generate economic activity. You generate something that or that is a value to our nation and its economy and the well-being of its citizens. Or you represent a significant area of data holdings, but you may not then meet the definition of critical infrastructure. Does that mean that the strategy doesn't? really apply to you? Because it doesn't talk about raising cybersecurity. It doesn't provide specifics about raising cybersecurity across the board. Mm -hmm. it, it, it starts out by, by that overarching goal if you read the introductory, but then if you read the actual case, okay, so or here's what we're going to do, it, it, it narrows it down to a subset of that, which it euphemistically uses the phrase critical infrastructure. Right. Yeah. And, and I think maybe a lot of people would probably make the same mistake I did that they're just assuming that they're just talking about the 16 sectors and kind of everything is under that big umbrella. But you make a good point. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, yeah. It also was interesting to me that um, the only reference that I can remember to a tangible event is not Petya June 2017 Russian activity directed mm -hmm. against Ukraine in which they execute a supply chain attack that, that goes very wrong and, and broadens out on his global endpoint. I was surprised right. that the document didn't reference, for example, I would argue the current situation in Ukraine represents some of the greatest cyber activity we've seen. And it also shows you how you can create cyber resilience in the face of that kind of significant right. activity. It, it, I'll be honest and very direct. It disappointed me that the document didn't reference, hey, let's look at some real world scenarios mm -hmm. that we actually see play out and how can we learn from them? I think the situation in Ukraine offers a very compelling model about how we might do things a little differently to enhance our cyber resilience. I mean, resilience is just pounded over and over in this document. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, and... Which I thought I, was another positive in the sense that it yeah. highlights... Cybersecurity has both a defensive strategy or component to it. Hey, let's make it tougher for the adversary to gain access 
to network, to its functionality, to the data embedded within it. But it also highlights that's not enough, that increasingly the, another major component of your cybersecurity strategy must be the creation of cyber resilience, the ability to actually execute and continue to operate even in the face of a successful penetration by an adversary. There's a section early on, it might be in the introduction, I don't recall exactly, it talks about kind of rebalancing the responsibilities to defend cyberspace and right. it's in the it beginning. notes for how long we've relied on end users to you know change their password every 90 days, et cetera. We know all the, the tropes around there and you know we blame victims for breaches for far too long, but seems to be a, an intent to realign this, which is pretty amazing and push more responsibility toward providers, et cetera. And, you know, that's also kind of at the crux of resilience. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see when we go from this document down to the follow-on components that actually get down to execution, mm-hmm. what does that responsibility piece, who does that mean? What the strategy talks about is we need to shift responsibility to the network owner, vice the user. And then it also references this idea of, and those who have significant cyber capabilities should also have an enhanced role in terms of responsibility for cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Now, just who that is, what groups that, that are, are really interesting to me. Again, the document is broad by nature. I would have thought perhaps they might have called out in addition to the network owner, the two greatest components to me who offer particular advantage with respect to the ability to enhance cybersecurity broadly across our society are the internet service providers because they control the gateways and they also have the greatest broad view of data flow. Right. And the second component to me are the major cybersecurity firms who bring deep knowledge, deep expertise. In some cases, they're writing the software that we're using for cybersecurity. They're developing the hardware that we all rely upon as components of our cybersecurity strategy. Um, It didn't call them out explicitly, which surprised me a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's a good point because a lot of companies, that's a huge source of intelligence. They, you know, agents and all these machines collecting that data. I mean, that's kind of the first line of. Yeah, because again, if you go to the current situation in Ukraine, you see how, at least from the uh, major cybersecurity firms, how their integration into the defense of Ukraine's systems, its functionality, its connectivity, their data concentrations, their cloud storage strategy, Ukraine's cloud storage strategy. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see the difference they have made. Again, I I would have hoped that the strategy would have called out a little bit the the insights that we're learning from the Ukraine situation and how we might apply them in the United States. Because I would argue that the, the situation in cyber, in the Ukraine scenario and the activity that the Russians are focusing from a cyber perspective against infrastructure, functionality, data concentrations, network structures within Ukraine is among the most sustained, highest level that we've ever seen directed against a particular nation state, often for very destructive purposes. Right. There's just some great lessons to learn there, but the strategy doesn't even talk about it. It's as if we wrote this thing in isolation. I don't even remember it, for example, referencing Colonial Pipeline, which arguably, you know, now uh, May of 21, I think, is Mm -hmm. is the... arguably one of the most recent significant events um, in 
the, the history of cyber activity within the U.S. and occurred during the the Biden you know administration. So they were the, the people that wrote this document were part of the the reaction and the follow on from Colonial, right. I, you're right. I don't think there is a mention of colonial at all. I there, do remember the NotPetya reference that you uh, talked about earlier, but you're right. I don't think colonial's in the, in the document at all. Um, not to get too far away from the strategy, but in terms of Ukraine, are you surprised we haven't actually seen more on the cyber front in terms of targeting critical infrastructure? I mean, it seems you know there, there's a lot of news about kinetic attacks against the against their grid, and and you know obviously how effective that's being. But um, on the cyber front, I don't know, maybe it's just not being reported. But yeah, part of this is I think in some ways we have to change our expectations about cyber activity. Traditionally, we've what we associate with cyber activity is something that is significant, catastrophic, probably too wrong a word, but very significant in terms of impact, very visible in terms of impact, some period of time associated with that impact. Right. And if you look at, and when, when events don't trigger those thresholds, we tend not to talk about it. What Ukraine is showing to me is there's a heck of a lot of activity ongoing, but because Ukraine has managed to create a, a great level of cyber resilience, the activity has not resulted in that kind of order of magnitude, visible impact, duration, scale. And because of that, people then assume well, there must not be much going on. And I'm going, oh my God, <laughs> you know, far from it, guys. There's right. a lot going on. It's right. just Ukraine has been, because it shifted to a very different cyber cybersecurity model, it has been very successful in creating a level of resilience, even as it does have outages and impact, but they're not sustained, they're not super visible, and they don't, they have not tended to last a significant period of time. Right. Well, hopefully we hear about all those insights soon once this thing is over. Yeah, what I'm hoping is that we do a lot of formal lessons learned mm. from the, for the cyber dimensions of this conflict. And then we use those lessons to identify, so how what might we do differently? Because one of the challenges to me with the strategy as written, it effectively doubles down on everything we're currently doing. Yeah, have been doing for some period of time. Mm -hmm. My comment would be, so how has that worked for us? I don't think we have significantly changed the needle. If you define the needle as not effort in terms of what we're doing to try to get better, because that's very significant. I don't minimize that for one minute. But one lesson I always learned, I learned from the military. One thing I told every team I was ever part of, guys, we recognize effort or input, but what we really value is performance or output. Mm -hmm. So I want to focus on what are we achieving? Not how hard are we working? Not how much money are we spending? Not what are we doing differently? What I care about is guys, what outcomes are we achieving? Because right. that's the metric that we should be assessed against. Um, and if I assess against that metric, I would argue what we're doing over the course of the last few years hasn't moved the needle significantly, which again argues to me. So doing more of the same and expecting a different outcome, I'm not sure that's a high probability of success. You mean the 30-day sprints aren't working <laughs> or the 90-day sprints? 
Right. And and look, I understand why we do that. I hated right. those when I was in government. I, I, I used to argue strongly against them because my, my view was, guys, when you get into this sprint kind of idea, you focus on something for 90 days, you declare victory, and then you move on to the next problem. These problem sets are not, a, not fixable in 90 right. days. But that's the way bureaucracies tend to focus. Unfortunately, it's true. So I, I often, when I was in government, used to try to argue against this, going, guys, it makes us feel good, but it doesn't lead to really long-term yeah. change. And what we got to focus on is long-term change. And we need sustained effort. We, we do these campaigns, we declare victory, and then do we go back a year later and assess where we are now? No. We move on to the next campaign that we got to do for 90 days. So, and don't get me wrong. I understand why we do that. Um, I certainly participated in plenty of them. I don't question the motivations. I just always thought it wasn't the most effective approach personally, but others will have a very different view of that. Yeah, but you're right though. Putting a start and end date on something like that isn't, <laughs> isn't effective. So. Well, it just doesn't, it doesn't reflect the complexity of the problems that you're dealing right. with here. Uh, so to get back to the strategy, the the section on critical infrastructure protection, which I think is the first pillar, there's a lot of language in there that seems to be heavily leaning towards regulation. And that's something that industry has certainly not always embraced in terms of more government involvement. Um, and especially it seems relevant since um, a lot of the critical infrastructure in the U.S. is privately owned. Why would it work this time? Do you think that's that's just a bunch of words on paper. I mean, what's your perspective there? No, it's interesting. Look, traditionally in the United States, where we have clearly differentiated between what is the role of government and what is the role of the private sector, where we were founded on the fundamental premise that it's the rights and the privacy of the individual that are the fundamental concern here, not the power of the government, and that government should not be granted so much authority, if you will, mm -hmm. that it imposes it imposes regulation, legal frameworks, policy choices that in any way inhibit the functionality of the private sector or the rights of the individual. The broad exception to that has been if we believe that the private sector activity represents significant risk. Think about aviation safety, automobile safety, for example. Those are two areas. We decided, hey, it's, it's a common good and the government should impose a much stronger regulatory framework. If you look at areas that we've associated with health and human safety or the possibility of injury, so think about what we do with respect to food, et cetera, where we've got you know, government inspector, inspectors, government regulations that the private sector must meet, but with respect to cyber, traditionally, we haven't gone down that road. So, for example, we don't have a single legal privacy standard for data in the United States. Now, compare that to the rest of the world. I would argue in the last two years, what you're seeing literally almost everywhere else in the world is a much stronger government regulatory and oversight position with respect to cybersecurity. Right. So look at legislation enacted in the last two years within the EU Australia, uh, China, India. I mean, you're, you're seeing around the world a much gr greater willingness by governments to impose legal standards, if you will, for aspects 
of cybersecurity. That has not been the historic model in the U.S. What this document shows you is we too are starting to go down this road more. Now, the devil's always in the details. And because the strategy is broad, it's very broad, it doesn't get into the specifics, it'll be interesting to see what do what does a follow-on regulatory or legislative framework look like? Or we continue to go with executive orders, right. for example, and national security decision memos, for example. The fact that we're still having this discussion, <laughs> I mean, it seems that we've been talking about this for 20 years in terms of data privacy laws and just, you know, we have 50 different state laws and why don't we have a national Jack, and we always will. Look, in the U.S. construct, there is always concerns about this. And, and there should be, given the way our, our, you know, our, our entire kind of fundamental building block as a nation built around this idea of, hey, the government can't be too powerful. Um, that leads us to a different approach than many other nations around the world. So to me, it's both very normal but very reasonable that we have these discussions Break. What I would also argue, though, is we need to start thinking about cybersecurity much more from a risk and a public harm perspective. If you look mm -hmm. at it through that lens, then there should be an, a greater willingness on the part of government to take a more aggressive regulatory or legal role. Now, the flip side is you want the government to do that in partnership with industry. You don't want it to do it in isolation and just, you know, impose it with no coordination no partnership in the development of just what that framework that you impose legally might look like. Right. I mean, in the meantime, though, it, it seems like so many communities are served, especially energy, water, by relatively small providers, assuming they're kind of under-resourced in terms of cyber and, and IT overall. Isn't there a place where the government can step up in terms of money or skilled training for around cyber? Um, you know, that seems to be a real need in terms of some of the, the size of these providers and, and the communities. Yeah. One, now, one of the good things about the strategy is highlights, for example, the government's going to play a role in the creation of an enhanced cyber workforce. That's a good thing. Yeah. One to your point, the one thing the strategy doesn't really say is. It, it talks about the responsibility of the private sector. It talks about what the government's role is, but the role is defined for government in the strategy does not really go down the road of, and the government will use a different model in terms of how it actually partners with the private sector to create enhanced cybersecurity. It, it continues to use, again, which we've used for several years now, this idea of collaboration, my argument would be collaboration really hasn't worked in the sense of achieving the outcomes we want. Mm -hmm. Again, don't confuse effort with outcome. Right. Um, and Ukraine also shows you that they went beyond, their model goes beyond collaboration to integration. They actually integrate government and the private sector side by side 24-7. My view is, guys, to get where we need to go, that's the model. This is about integration and not just collaboration. The strategy yep. doesn't go down that road, though. It, it continues to say, we're going to collaborate, but in the end, private sector, it's your responsibility. And I look at it and go, hmm, I think there's value in a different model. And I would pick critical infrastructure components as the place to start because our power and water, for example, are very fractured where we literally have hundreds, 
if not between the two sectors, there are literally thousands of entities that generate power or water across our United States. Compare that to other places like uh, Australia, because I've just spent some time there. Australia has like five major power providers for the whole country. We're not structured that way. Now, Australia, it's a continental sized nation, but it's got a population of 26 million. So it's geographically has a, a size like the United States, although the United States is slightly larger geographically. On the other hand, the U.S. has a like a population that's almost 15 times the size of Australia. So our structure represents the fact that it grew up over time across a continent. So it's got a lot of small, very separated or isolated entities, many of which are not large, don't have access to a significant amount of resources or expertise, and they are heavily regulated. So their ability to generate revenue to pay for cybersecurity is somewhat challenging for them. Yeah, I mean, you, you look around the world at some of the models we can beg and borrow from, and you know, it's we're not always kind of the the leaders in in this space, and it's interesting to see how things are adapted and adopted. Yeah, the good news for us in the United States, I would argue, is look, there's strong recognition of the problem set. There's strong willingness to take action, both within the government and within the private sector. Where I don't think we have it exactly right is I don't think the fundamental model is the right one. And my argument would be it hasn't generated the outcomes. And we too, all too often are focusing on effort and not outcome. Before we wrap up, I want to make sure we touch on a couple of things in, in a couple of the other pillars in the, sure. in the strategy. Um, I mean, personally, I found the, the disrupting and dismantling threat actors pillar pretty interesting. Um, you know, the, the federal government has collaborated with uh, other entities, international entities to take down botnet operators, ransomware gangs, credit card rings, you know, attacking the infrastructure that supports cybercrime. There seemed to be some aggressive language in that section. What did you think about kind of? So again, it's not new. It, that all of those items we have done in the last couple of years, right. starting with the Trump team, and now and then the Biden team added some additional things. Um, so, for example, the strategy it validates slash endorses DOD's role. It specifically highlights Cyber Command's defense forward strategy, which you know, on a personal note, we we developed that. Well, I was still a commander. I'm like, hey, glad to see that. Uh, yeah. Selfishly, so apologize. Um, <laughs> it, but it, again, it, it tends to validate what we have been doing, but it puts it in, it very much puts it in writing and, and makes sure that the rest of the world understands, hey, look, this is a significant component of our cybersecurity strategy. It is not just a passive or defensive strategy. Mm-hmm. While it has significant defensive components, it also argues one of the components of a successful cybersecurity strategy for the nation as a whole has got to be the government using its capabilities, whether that be the military, law enforcement, um, CISA, and its capacities and capabilities. It talks about, hey, we got to be willing to use those more aggressively, more offensively in some areas, and much more in partnership with other entities outside the United States, which I, I agree strongly with. I think right. that those those are all good things, and it puts in writing effectively what we've been doing now for the last several years. I, I also found interesting in this section um, when they brought up ransomware, and it sounds like they want to kind of impede the cryptocurrency exchanges that are used by some of these these criminal operations. Makes sense, but 
sounds kind of tricky. I was just wondering what your thoughts were. On well, it's not easy to do, but again, right. um, the Biden team has highlighted and publicly acknowledged we have done that. They've publicly acknowledged in, in a couple areas already, Colonial Pipeline being a very visible example, where the FBI, in partnership with other components, to include my old world, um, you know, interdicted the actual flow of the cryptocurrency from Colonial to the actual criminal group. Um, so again, it's it puts down in writing something we've been doing for a while, but I'm glad to see it. I think it's a very good component of a strategy. We want to ensure that we're applying all the tools, you know, that we have and doing it in a reasonable manner. And I think the technical application of capabilities designed to interdict the flow of money that has been extorted, that's a very good and I think very reasonable course of action. And it's a good mm -hmm. component of the cybersecurity strategy to me. The the other section that I, I liked a lot was about, it talked about kind of the market, the market forces and how that can be used to drive security and resilience. And there was a lot of talk in that section about secure software development and data security and shifting liability, et cetera. I mean, we've been talking about these problems for 20 years now. I mean, do you see something in play there that might make a difference. Well, first of all, this it's the first time you've really, we've talked about that a lot, but it's the first time you've really seen it in a cybersecurity strategy. I think that's great mm -hmm. because I have always argued, look, governments tend to focus their time on two things. And this isn't a criticism. It is historically what the role of government is. It tells us what we cannot do. And it tells us what we must do. The, the thing that I thought historically has been lacking is particularly in cybersecurity well, how can government incentivize the outcomes we want? Think about the levers that government controls, taxation, um, visas for the movement of cyber professionals in and out of the United States. And look, government has a lot of levers that can really, in partnership with the private sector, can really incentivize the private sector to go beyond minimums. Because when you only focus on what you must do or what you cannot do, you tend to to drive, in my experience, you tend to drive organizations to do the minimums. Mm -hmm. And to get where we need in cybersecurity, the minimum's not enough. Right. We gotta, we gotta drive and shape behaviors to incentivize people to go beyond minimums, to raise the bar to a much higher level with respect to cybersecurity. I think that's a real strong point of the strategy as written. It, it explicitly, for the first time, makes an argument that government has a role to play in incentivizing outcomes. Now the devil's mm -hmm. always in the details and it is a strategy. So it doesn't go into, Hey, here's how we're going to do it. And here's what those incentives might look like. So we need to watch and see the follow on kinds of things that will flow from this. And what did you think about the, the, the section on shifting liability to software providers? Again, it's all about incentives and enforcement at the end of the day, but do you think that the providers are going to fight this? I mean, we're, they're struggling around S bombs and, and making that happen. I mean, is insurance the, Carrot stick there. I mean, what's your take on, on that? So part? insurance clearly is a component. Now, I, yeah. I will say um, I am I am glad to see a discussion about what liability do the generators of capability, whether it be software or hardware, what liability, what role do they have to play here? Yeah. Again, I'll be very direct. It used to frustrate the heck out of me when I was the director of NSA that I would often hear it's the big bad NSA that exploits these vulnerabilities. And I would think to myself, we didn't create the vault. We didn't write the software. We didn't create the software. Where's the accountability for the entity that created the vulnerability in the first place? 
So I'm sure. glad to see that the strategy calls out, look, there is liability. There is a need for those people that generate the cornerstone of our software and hardware that our cybersecurity strategies are built around. There is a need for them to assume a, a greater role and to acknowledge that they have a level of liability here for what they do. Again, the devil's yeah. always in the details of what does that mean? But right. I view that as a positive personally. Now, I hope those details get called out in partnership with the private sector rather than just unilaterally imposed, so to speak. Yeah, I find it fascinating what's going on around cyber insurance and just kind of the volatility there and no one's yeah, cyber insurance hasn't yet taken on. off as broadly as I hoped it would. I thought right. that cyber, just like you saw automobile insurance incentivize consumer choice, you know, by making um, policies cheaper for those who bought safer cars, for example, lower collision costs. We incentivize people to buy safer cars. Right. I'd like to see cyber insurance playing a role in incentivizing both the choices that right now corporations make. But I also think potentially over time, I think there's a role for cyber insurance at an individual level, even though we're not doing that yet. Yeah. But I bet we will. So kind of as a last question, Mike, just kind of a year from now, what what kind of change do you think that this strategy might inspire? Do you, do you see well, a year from now, we'll see the next year, I think. Trying to the government will be trying to flesh out what does this mean down to the execution level. How are we going to do it? In the next year, I hope we also gain the insights from what's been going on in, in Ukraine and asking ourselves how might that portend changes within our own current approach. How might we use that um, to try to drive change? Because again, I use uh, the teams I was part of. I always remind them: never let a good crisis go to waste. Crises are one of the best ways to drive change in bureaucracies. So I hope we take advantage of that. I think it will also be interesting to see in the next year, how do these actors, whether it be nation states, criminal groups, non-criminal groups, how, do the, how does their behavior change and evolve in the next year? Right. Because there's nothing static here, either offensive or defense. And so each side is always trying to anticipate the actions of the other. So you're always trying to get ahead, trying to anticipate that's what keeps us busy, right? Yeah, that's why there's always plenty of work. And that's why this isn't a problem set that we're going to solve in a few years and then declare victory. There right. is no sprint here. This is all about sustained effort over time and how we maximize the capabilities of both the private sector in terms of the entities that develop and actually execute components of cyber strategy, software, hardware, you know, cybersecurity and IT firms the internet service providers and the MSPs, for example, as well as the government. It's how we take the best of all of that, integrate it, combine it. That's going to be our highest probability of success in terms of enhancing cybersecurity. And I do like the fact, again, as the, the strategy highlights, look, cybersecurity has both a defensive component and a resilience component to it. Mm -hmm. You've got to do both. got to do both. All right, Mike, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I think this was a, a really important discussion. I'm glad we uh, we took the time. No, thanks for your time, Mike, and have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.